Uh, Bob Dylan famously said in a song, uh, we all have to serve somebody. And I'm going to read these lyrics. This is an interesting song. And uh, you didn't think you're going to get like good philosophy from Bob Dylan. But this is a really good point he makes in this song. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. Not if you're Baptist, but you know, I'm just kidding. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan's point, I think, is very clear. We all, we're all serving something out there. You're all serving something. Serving something is kind of like the unavoidable a human predicament. According to the Bible, we are made to serve God first and then other, other human beings, our neighbor. And, and that, by extension, by the way, is glorifying God. When you serve and love your neighbor, you're also glorifying God. And this is a reflection of the great commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor. That's what the Bible teaches. Love is not a feeling or an emotion, but it's sacrificial. It's a service. It's, it's laying down and serving others. We were made to love. We were made to serve. We find the greatest joy in serving. I love the way entrepreneur Tim Aron put it. Whoever renders service to many puts himself in a line for greatness. For greatness. Great wealth, great return, great satisfaction, great reputation, great joy. Great joy. And it's amazing that research completely backs this up. I and mean, people that are involved in serving and volunteering statistically have way less depression, way less stress, way less anxiety, and they... They don't, they don't die fast. <laughs> they live longer, basically. It's a morbid way of saying it, but, you know, they have longer lives, okay? Um, and this is according to the Mayo Clinic article, Helping People Changing Lives, Three Health Benefits of Volunteering, right? It's going to be the best pitch of volunteering you've ever heard. <laughs> uh, volunteering for selfish people. No, I'm joking. That's a joke, okay? Volunteering reduces stress and increases positive, relaxed feelings by releasing dopamine. Interesting. By spending time in service to others, volunteering reports feeling a sense of meaning and appreciation, both given and received, which can have a stress-reducing effect. Reduced stress further decreased risk of many physical and mental health problems, such as heart disease, stroke, depression, anxiety, and gen uh, general illness. In addition, a longitudinal study of aging found that individuals who volunteer have lower mortality rates, like I was saying, than those who do not, even when controlling for age, gender, and physical health. Now, if you do re research, you Google this on volunteering, you will find tons of support, tons of research supporting this idea that volunteering is good for you mentally, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, the whole shebang. According to the Psychology Post, the researchers examined data from 27,301 individuals from 15 countries who participated in a European social survey. Their results confirmed there was a negative correlation between volunteering and depressive symptoms, meaning that, that it repelled depressive symptoms. In other words, people who volunteer were more tended to report fewer symptoms of depression. So interesting. And what they found is that 
if you use if you use a gifting that you have, if you use something that you're particularly good at your career, what your niche is in your career, and you apply that to serving and volunteering in the community, or especially as we'll see a church, that brings even more happiness and stress relief. Um, and this is what the Guardian article volunteering linked to a fall in depression. A survey for charity uh, community service volunteers CSV found that half of those who had volunteered for more than two years, 48% said it made them feel less depressed. Interesting. The poll of more than 600 volunteers also found that 63% of 25 to 34-year-olds, 62% of the, of the over 65s um, said volunteering reduced stress levels. The poll also found, and this is the point, 71% of volunteers who offered their professional skills, things they were good at, their gifting, to use a New Testament term, experience, said it helped combat depression. 7 out of 10. Pretty impressive, a little over that. And what is even more interesting is studies link increased happiness and less depression, surprise, surprise, with volunteering for a religious cause. <laughs> yeah, you see where I'm going, right? You know, you know where this is going. Rather than a secular cause, okay? You guys know. <laughs> Pastor's really pulling the gears. Did he plan for this? Maybe I did, and maybe I did, okay? Um, just saying. This is found in, uh, in this huge article, The Volunteering and Depression, the Role of Psychological and Social Resources in, in Different Age Groups by Mark A. Muskis. He writes, volunteering for religious causes is more beneficial for your mental health than volunteering for secular causes. There it is. The proof is in the pudding. And what's amazing is, surprise, surprise, this lines up perfectly with what the Word of God teaches us today, is that we were made by God to serve uh, the local church, to serve the eternal kingdom of God, to invest in this kingdom that's eternal, the body of Christ. And, and as we serve in this eternal, everlasting kingdom, the church, the kingdom of God, and serve and glorify God, we, we find the greatest joy. We find the greatest fulfillment from this, expressing our spiritual gifts. So Romans 12.3, we're going to look at this verse by verse. For by the grace of God given to me, I say everyone who uh, uh, among you uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we shouldn't think so highly of ourselves. When we do this, we're not, even, we're not only hurting our relationship with God because we're being prideful and we're, we're not focusing on our sin or need for Christ, but uh, we also uh, we think too highly. We have overly high assessment of ourselves. We can't see what our spiritual gifts is because we think we're good at everything. We think we're kind of a big deal. Like, I'm good at everything. I'm just the greatest guy ever, right? And, we, and so we need to have an honest and proper view of ourselves to know what we are good at and then what we are not good at. Because if you have an over-high view of yourself, then you do think you're good at everything. You think you're kind of a big deal. And that hurts the body of Christ. I've talked to so many pastors. <laughs> so, I mean, and worship leaders. I mean, I mean, it is incredible. Uh, the biggest problem is that everybody wants to be on stage and sing. Even people who God has clearly not gifted the, the gift of song, okay? Everybody wants to be in the limelight and get attention, you know? And so people fight over it and they cause divisions in the church because they think they should be on stage every single Sunday. They need to be in this view or that view, singing this chorus line or whatever it is. And so churches get in fights over this. And I've talked to so many pastors who are just, you know, just upset about this. So many worship leaders that are so furious at this. 
It gives the people have such a high view of themselves that doesn't match up with reality and what they're able to do. I, I think Clint Eastwood had one of the best lines ever from Dirty Harry. A man has got to know his limitations. Right? And besides... <laughs> Alan knows. Um, if you say you're good at everything, then people just know you're lying. They, they, they know that you are. And you can have the opposite extreme, which I've seen this a lot. You'd be like a spiritual Eeyore about everything, you know. No one likes me. I have nothing to offer the church. I'm not good at anything. I'm just so worthless. I'm the only person who doesn't have a spiritual gift. You know, you people like that, right? And so, yeah, there are people that go too high or too low, depending on the circumstance. And you have these extremes. And so it results in you just not knowing what your spiritual gifts are. Not knowing. You have to be honest about your strengths. You have to be honest about your weaknesses. Now, my problem, as you may have already guessed, is I have a problem with being too brutally honest many times. And it happens to me when I'm preaching, too. I can remember um, interviewing for this position. I think it's almost seven years. I'm coming up on seven years. Wow, it's a long time. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess, right? So... I was being interviewed for this job in a Skype thing. I was in South Carolina, and they asked me the question that every interviewee dreads, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And I said my strengths were, you know, I'm a pretty good at preaching. I love people, like talking and caring for people. That's kind of what I'm good at. Then I went to my weaknesses, and I just laid it out. I said, okay, here's my problems. These are the two big problems. I'm a loose cannon, Joe Biden, Donald Trump mouth. I just say things at random, and people get hurt. Like, I just, like, will say whatever I think. Like, but the, the, like, the space between my head and my mouth is like a second. It just comes out, right? And then I said this. I'm like, and I am literally, and I do mean literally, and you're going to know this, too, about me if you know me for any length of time. I am the worst administrator in the world. I said this in the interview. Okay? And they all started laughing. <laughs> because they were not expect. You know what people are expecting, right? Like, well, my problem is that I just work too hard. No, your problem is that you're, you know, that you're bad at this and that. You just won't tell them. Yeah, no one believes that. Come on, that you work too hard? No, that's not your problem. That is, you have other problems. Maybe you're prideful or egotistical. And as a Skype call was going on, I could see my wife doing this in the corner. <laughs> she's Southern, right? You know, you can't say be that honest. You know, she's just like, oh my gosh, he's just, he's just. And then after I got the interview done, she's like, this is what she says to me. She's like, you are never going to get this job. <laughs> 10 minutes later, Eric Pitcher shoots me an email. We'd love to have you come out. It was a great interview. <laughs> so <laughs> good times. Um, <laughs> So yeah, we, because people want to hear honesty. We want the truth. And it's hard sometimes to be honest. And this is why we shouldn't think too high of ourselves, too low of ourselves. We will not be able to determine our spiritual gifts. As Paul says, we need sober, sober judgment, an honest assessment. Verses 4 and 5. For as we are in one body, we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another. So Paul's here is, hey, yeah, you got different uh, functions, different gifts in the body of Christ. And that means that all believers, every single one of you, every single one of you has a spiritual gift this morning. Every single one of you. There isn't like a believer who like lacks spiritual gifts. And this 
is confirmed again in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. You have a spiritual gift this morning. You have a gift. You have a certain special you know, set of skills that makes, you know, makes people like you a nightmare for people like me, as Liam Neeson would say. From, um, I don't know what that movie, what's it called? Yeah, Taken. I know, there's like nine of them now, whatever. Um, so... No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 4 through 7, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So there's a variety of gifts, and there are varieties of activities, but in the same God who empowers them all in every one, every single person. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now skip down here in verse 11. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. He talks about how we're all body parts and goes into this. So yes, every single one of you, every single one of you has a spiritual gift which God has given you to bless the local church. I, I hate to say this, but there's no category in the New Testament for a Christian who uh, just shows up on Sunday and then bolts afterwards and doesn't do anything. It's not, it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. That category is not even mentioned. We're not caring about anybody. We're not reaching out to anybody. Whatever it is people do. In the New Testament, there's no category for just a, a person who has no connection to the church and, and doesn't care, doesn't encourage, doesn't do anything at all, um, and never serves. You know, people have this idea of this American Christianity where, you know... You never go to church. You say you're a Christian. You never go to church, and you never express your gifts. And it just in the New Testament, as you read it, there's a person like that is never even mentioned as a part of as a category. If you were, if, if, if not you in particular, but if someone were to say, "Yeah, I'm a Christian," never go to church, never do anything at church, never serve the local church. If you were to say that to Peter and Paul, they would. That's like saying to them, "There's such thing as a square circle. A Christian who, who does not serve and follow Christ." is a category that's foreign to the New Testament. So this idea of a private Christian comfort living, never serving, is just an American invention that Americans have made up because we want to be comfortable. We don't want people to tell us anything. We don't want to be inconvenienced, you know, in our little comfortable, you know, suburban life and everything. No, that's not a category. That's something that's a, a part of our American culture of comfort. Romans 12.6, it says, Having gifts that are differ, differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. So these gifts are given to us. You don't earn these gifts, so you can't get like cocky, prideful, and arrogant and say like, I am so good at encouraging people. I'm amazing at preaching. And Johnny's like, I'm the best musician in the world. You know, or, you know he, he's so humble, he'd never say that. But, you know, so, I mean, just imagine someone was like that. Someone was really egotistical, you know, about their gifts. You know, it's like those, I mean, it just kind of ruins a gift if you're egotistical. And that's why Paul says this. This is given to you as a gift of grace. You know, like an athlete that's like really arrogant and proud. It, like, you don't even care how good they do, right? Like a Conor McGregor or a LeBron James or a Floyd Mayweather. Like those people, like, yeah, they're great athletes, but no one likes them. Like, and no one wants them to win, even though they're good. You know, they're just like, their arrogance ruins their gift. I don't know if fighting people is a spiritual gift, so I don't want to say that. Maybe I should delete that Conor McGregor comment, so just pretend like I didn't say that, okay? Just don't do that, Nate. Um, so, yeah, our gifts are to be a blessing to others. We, and we have to be thankful for them. Thankful that God has given us, a, given you all gifts, and not be arrogant. Now, gift of prophecy, I went over this last time, super controversial. It means basically speaking new revelation on the same level as the Bible. That ceases since the Bible is finished and you can't add or subtract from the Bible. 
proportion of faith that is mentioned here is uh, that when the prophets spoke in the first century and, and they were adding to the word of God to the New Testament, uh, that was consistent with the previous faith that had been given in the Old Testament. God, people say, oh, we got the New Testament, it's a totally different thing. No, it isn't. The, the uh, New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, a prediction of all of its prophecies. So when the prophets spoke, they spoke in a consistent way in proportion with what was already given and laid down. If you want to look more in that, look at my last sermon on prophecy. Verse 7, we're moving on here. If service in serving the one who teaches in his teaching. So, yeah, serving is very broad here. I mean, it's extremely broad. It can be like, you know, cleaning the church or it could be helping at Operation Christmas Child after the service. Could be as broad as that. I'm just saying, could be that broad. Just putting it out there, you know. Not that that's happening. You know, it is, you know. Um, so serving is, uh, is, is a spiritual gift. Now, um, there's, there's, there's a specific uh, ways in which this is mentioned, you know, but it's very broad, very broad. And it, it could be, you know, helping fixing things, fixing uh, all sorts of things. Now, when you think of a spiritual gift, you think of like a superpower, like, you know, like a Marvel power, like a DC power, like, oh, I got a super gift, you know. People usually don't think of cleaning toilets, okay? And they think of like, oh, I got some super power, you know. But, you know, cleaning toilets or fixing toilets, that's a spiritual gift. That's a ability that God has gifted you to, to help the church. Um, and, it, and you think, well, that's something spiritual, Nate. That's not spiritual helping, you know, cleaning the church or cleaning toilets or fixing toilets or fixing doors or fixing this. Like we have a lot of people around here that do that. No, it is a spiritual gift because it is serving the spiritual church, the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom that will not perish, that will not fade away. It will never end. And so we're investing not in something temporary, but uh, temporary, but eternal rather. And so this is, this is important. So yeah, mundane tasks that appear mundane are actually spiritually gifts here, like fixing things, helping and serving, serving and helping the poor, serving and helping people in need here in this church. And it is possible for a person to have multiple spiritual gifts, but it is not possible for a person to have all the spiritual gifts. Let me say that again. It's possible for a person to have multiple spiritual gifts, but it is not possible for a person to have all the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 28-31 proves this. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracle workers, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will still show you a more excellent way. The Greek here says, no, it, it, you know, when he has, are all apostles, are all prophets, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. The anticipation here in the Greek is that no, not everybody does these things. Not everybody does these things. So one says, oh no, everybody has to have this one gift. No, that's not true. That, that's contradicting what Paul is saying here. In the Greek, he's saying, no, not everybody has every spiritual gift. These, are, these questions are expecting a negative answer. Um, and so, yeah, you may have one spiritual gift, which, you know, in my case is teaching. Uh, that's really all I'm good at. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, maybe I have more. But, you know, teaching, you know, which includes preaching, teaching. You could be teaching the children's ministry, which is terrific. If you want to, if you have that gift, we're, we're really happy that you do. Um, <laughs> 
women's Bible study teaching that youth group, helping there. It goes on. So that's a gift, you know, that, that is very broad also. Any kind of type of teaching. It doesn't just mean preaching. Now, um, I did not gift my, get my gift of preaching until I became a Christian. I couldn't even, like, speak in front of people, really. I was like, I'm sitting there, I don't know what to do. You know, you start getting, like, all shaky and everything. I was really, you know, a, a very timid young man. And I didn't read books. So I didn't talk in front of people, nor did I read books until I became a Christian. Now, I realize this is not true of everyone. People, you know, have natural gifts that God supernaturalizes for the body of Christ. So my, my, like, my father-in-law, for instance, is, like, an amazing administrator, like, the greatest administrator ever. And when he became Christian, he's going to use those administrative skills for the body of Christ. So he has a natural gift, which is supernaturalized, if you will, or used for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So a gift can be something that God activates that you've always had inherent, or it can be given something new to you as a result of being saved and what have you. So that's, that's you know, the way we look at this. Romans 12a goes on to say, the one who exhorts in his exhortation and the one who contributes in his generosity the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. Now, the, the phrase, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, this refers to the spiritual gift of encouragement. I mean, people can be very encouraging. Um, you, know, Christian, you know, the Christian life can be hard. We, we, people go through difficult times. We need to hear something uplifting. Especially when you're really struggling emotionally. We need to hear someone, you know, put their arm around you and say something kind to you. Now, I want to, I want to stress this point hard here because it's important for all Christians to encourage, right? Every Christian should give, as is mentioned here. Every Christian should help out in ministries in the church. But you see, what a spiritual gift is, to be specific, is a person is particularly good at something particularly gifted at something, a part of Christian service. So, for instance, like, you say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. So someone comes up to you and says, oh, Nate, I just lost my job. I've been going through a hard time, you know, and everything. Well, you know, say, go, go talk to Lori Rowe or somebody else. That's not my gift. I can't encourage you later, you know. It's like, come on. No, that's not what... All of these, all of these things are part of the Christian life. Encouraging, giving, uh, you, know, you know, teaching people, mothers, teaching their children. That's all a part of the Christian life. You say, oh, honey, you, you know, your mom, you're trying to teach your kids the Bible. I can't teach you. It's not my gifting. No, we should all teach the, the Word of God. But some people, what a spiritual gift is, is something that you're particularly good at. That's the idea. It's not like, well, I have a spiritual gift. I can't do anything else. I'm kind of got to tie my hands behind my back. I'm only doing one thing. That's it. No more. You know, and I can't do anything else. So, no, that's not what this is saying. It just means, and there's, there's going to be some things that you're better at and some things that you're worse at, but a spiritual gift is, 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 is like a highlight. It's a highlight. It's a special thing that you're especially good at. It says the one who contributes in his generosity is uh, better translated as the one who uh, gives money in a way of, uh, of giving money but not expecting something back. You know, people always think, you know, especially in politics, you know, and I understand why they think this. You know, people give money, special interest or whatever it is, and you kind of expect something back. You're, you know, that's, you know, but that's not what biblical giving is. Biblical giving is giving out of an abundance, as it stressed here, out of a kindness of one's own heart, not expecting something back. And it could be giving to the church, giving to the poor, giving to people in need, whatever it is. That's, that's the broad sense of giving here. Someone who is wise at giving and somebody who doesn't expect things back, but wants to give of themselves financially.
The one who leads with zeal is someone who can uh, motivate you to do something for the body of Christ with passion. You know, that's, um, that's somebody who leads kind of zealously and has a passion to leading people towards a certain vision. Those who do acts of mercy with cheerfulness, again, we're, we all should be merciful. You're like, well, that's not my spiritual gift, so I'm not going to be merciful to you. I'm going to be cruel and harsh. No, that's not what this is saying. It's, this is somebody who is especially merciful. Someone who is especially kind towards people who are struggling with drug addiction, homelessness, who are broken, drug addicts, people who've had a hard life, and they need to, to hear and, and to be reminded and supported in the mercies of Jesus. That's what it means here to be a mercy worker, to have that spiritual gift of mercy. Now, these lists, I want to stress, are not meant to be exhaustive. They, they, they represent kind of a common gifts that are needed in the Christian church. So you might ask, okay, Nate, so how do I know? How do I know what spiritual gifts I have? Um, I wouldn't suggest going on the internet. You got, who's seen those spiritual gift tests on the, on the internet? Who's seen those? Okay, a few people, like SN7. I'm sure you guys have heard of them. I, seen them, I saw them in college. They're so ridiculous. Some of them just, I mean, they, they divide up the spiritual gifts in very strange and arbitrary ways. Um, and I don't think they're very helpful. I was talking to someone this morning, I was talking to Megan this morning, and we were like, yeah, they're more like personality tests so much. They don't, they, they, you know, they're just not, they're, they're not very effective because the Bible does not explicitly state every spiritual gift, right? Like, doesn't mention like, well, you can serve in helping out in plumbing, or you can serve in stacking chairs. Like, it doesn't go into that kind of stuff. And so, the, so yeah, the spiritual gift thing is very arbitrary and limited. Here are the ways that you can discern your spiritual gift, and it's not by taking an online test. I mean, you could theoretically do that. I don't want to say it's impossible, but here are some ways, and it's by, first is by reflection and self-examination. Reflection and self-examination. This is what uh, Paul says. He says, when you want to think of yourself with sober judgment. You, you think, okay, what am I good at? What am I good at? What do I like doing most? Do I feel a burden to help a certain group of people? Uh, what problems do I tend to notice in the church that I think need to get done? That could be like a, you know, something that you feel like this burden from God. You know? uh, what, do, what do you feel needs to get done? Do you think the church is disorganized or needs help in a certain area? Maybe God has placed you in a thing to help in a ministry, to help organize a church more. And so when you exercise these, these services, these gifts, and, uh, you know, do, are they recognized and affirmed by others? Are they? That's important because, you know, if you want to be on stage with Johnny looking, looking kind of like, you know, pretty, pretty cool up here, right? But you sound like, um, you know, a dying Eskimo or a dying squirrel. I don't know. I'm making up words up here. I'm sorry if that sounded offensive. Um, Eskimo, I didn't need to say that. Um, see what I said? That's my weakness. I just say random things. Uh, why, why does it even come out of my mouth? I don't know. Um, a dying seal. <laughs> a dying seal, yeah. <laughs> a dying seal, a dying squirrel. If you sound like that and everybody's like... When you, when you sing, they're like, oh, you know, you get the, oh, look, you know, kind of like that. You know, you maybe, maybe you shouldn't be up here. It's not being recognized other than terror. Um, second way you figure out you have spiritual gifts is you study the list throughout the New Testament. You, you, you reflect on the list in the Bible and you pray over them and you ask for God's leading in them. Verses um, 6 and 8 also discuss a third strategy. Sometimes you just got to go for it. 
Sometimes you just got to do it, right? You know, just Nike, just do it, right? And, you know, that's the best way you can figure out sometimes what your spiritual gift is, is by just doing various tasks and seeing what you're good at or not good at. Romans 12, 6 is having gifts that are different according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Use them. So we have to use them to know how, if we have them. That's the whole point. And so if you want to find out, then you, you want to serve in various areas. See what areas you're good at. I would have never have guessed that I was gifted at preaching and teaching unless I first tried studying and actually teaching. Bible studies, you know, youth group I started out preaching, you know, all those kind of things. I needed to exercise my spiritual gifts before I figured out that I can actually be a gift to others. And um, I hope my gift has gotten better over time because at first there were some times where it was kind of rough, you know. But that, that can happen. If it's your passion and you can work on it and grow in that gift especially. Uh, I was uh, talking to a volunteer at the church last week, um, and she was saying how she loves serving here because when she serves here, she gets so much joy and happiness to serve. And I was kind of relating to how I feel, you know, serving here at the church and the, the joy it brings you. It brings you so much joy to give and to help others. It really does. And when she uh, said, I was reminded of this, uh, the, the words quoted by uh, the Apostle Paul. He's quoting Jesus, actually, when he does this. In Acts uh, 20, 35, he says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. The one who, the one who's, it's not the one who's receiving that's getting the benefit, it's the one who's giving. And the reason why it is more blessed to give than it is to receive is because God has designed us that way. He has made us that way to find true happiness in not taking and taking and taking from others, but giving and sacrificing for others. And this is why people who only care about themselves who only serve themselves, who are focused on themselves, only spend money on themselves, and all, you know, just, just all about themselves and their comforts, are the most depressed and unhappy people ever. It is the people who give and give and sacrifice. Those are the most happiest people I've encountered. And the reason why that is is because God has made us that way, to give, to sacrifice for others. And so when we do that, we get the ha greatest happiness, we get the greatest joy in serving. And this is reflected in, um, and I hope I can make it through without crying, I swear. I was like trying to practice not crying all, because I don't like crying in front of people. Um, in one of the saddest, most beautiful stories ever written, uh, it was read to me uh, as a kid by my mother, The Giving Tree. Who's heard of The Giving Tree, out of curiosity? Not as much people as I'd hoped for. <laughs> okay. So just hold on here. This is, this is a very uh, powerful book here. But uh, the basic idea behind the book is that there is a person that's personified as a tree. And the, her unconditional love and giving uh, to a boy. And I want to read just the intro section of the book so you can kind of feel how the book is written. And this is connecting. You'll see how it's connected here. It says, Once there was a tree... And she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come and he would uh, gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would play hide and go seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went on. 
and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. The one day the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat the apples and, pr and play in the shade and be happy. He says, I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I have only leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them into the city. Then you will have money, and then you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away, and the tree was happy, but the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back, and the tree was shook with joy and said, Oh, come, boy, come, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife. I want children. And so I need a house. Need a house. Can you give me a house? I, and Tree said, I, I have no house. The forest is my house, but you may cut off. You may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. And this reoccurring line occurs, the tree was happy in giving everything to the boy. And the story continues on and on as the boy uh, eventually just takes everything from the tree and, the, and cuts down and kills the tree to where the, the tree is a stump in the ground. That's what the tree is left with. Because she's given everything, even her own life to the boy, the selfish and evil boy. I want to read you the last lines of this book. After a long time, the boy came back again. And I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. The boy said, my teeth are too weak for apples. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing in them. I am too old to swing on branches, said the, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I am an old stump. I am sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and to rest. Quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, come, boy. Sit down, sit and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. Now, this profoundly impacted me as my mother read it to me as a child. But, you know, I don't know if you know this, but this book is really, really Controversial People really, some people, they either hate it or you love it kind of thing. That's how it is. And one person who's a professor somewhere um, 
she said this about the book and how it feels like uh, it promotes exploitation and abusing a person. And so it's an evil, wicked book. This is what she says. It's totally self-effacing. The mother treats her son as if he were a perpetual infant while he behaves towards her as if he were pro- frozen in time as an importunate baby. This overrated picture book thus presents a paradigm for young children, a callous, exploitive human relationship both across genders and across generations. It perpetuates a myth of a selfless, all-giving mother who exists to be used in the image of a male child who can offer no reprocity. Reprocity. You know, when I first read that, I thought to myself... Oh, man, that sounds like a pretty good point. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty messed up. Teaching people to be like, I, I got to be just really selfish and messed up to this tree. You know, that's really mean. But I thought about it a little bit. <laughs> I started thinking. I was like, well, I mean, I mean, the giving tree, that's kind of like how Jesus is to us. It's just like, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of how Jesus and Christ views and treats us. You see, Jesus gave you everything. And at the greatest personal cost to himself, even while we were his enemies and we hated him and we screamed in darkness and we sinned against him, he still loved us. He paid the highest cost for us. By dying on the cross for all of our sins and taking hell in our place on the tree of the cross, he suffered the wrath of God, the punishment which we would have received in hell. He received on that cross. Jesus lived his entire life, every second of his life, for you and me, meriting and earning righteousness for us. So he could give everything to us. It costs God. I mean, God, that's the essence of who God is. He gives. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's a giving God and we're made in his image. And Jesus has given you far more than even the giving tree. And what we don't give him in return, we can never pay back that infinite gift. We can never reciprocate that ever. All we can do is receive that gift of eternal life. Receive it by faith, trusting in Him, earned by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. The ultimate giving tree. And the thing is, if we're being really honest with ourselves, we struggle with sin every day. And yet Jesus keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving and forgiving. Because he has given you everything. And now what we can do is we, we, can, we can give back. He's given us everything. We can now give back and, give and serve and love others because of that great message. We can be inspired and grateful and thankful for Jesus has served us more than anyone. Jesus has given us more than anyone at the greatest, ultimate, infinite personal cost for himself. And that is why I believe The Giving Tree is one of the most popular and yet decisive, divisive books ever written because it... It expresses something beautiful to us. It expresses unconditional love that we so desperately need and want. If you're being honest and you're by yourself at 2 or 3 in the morning, you're being honest, that's what you want. We all want unconditional love. We want a love like that. And if there's a love that exists like that, it's worth living for. It's worth, do, it's, it's worth sacrificing everything for if we can find that beautiful gift of everlasting, unconditional love. Something like that exists. We need it for our lives. We need it to exist. It's the very air we breathe. We desire it so deeply. This, this picture of 
never-ending, unconditional love, self-sacrificial giving and unconditional love. That's one thing we desire, and that is provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the one true story, not a fictional story, but the true story of the gospel. It is that one story that gets you and me right that fills up our desperate, hurting, aching heart. So this morning, if you feel lost and you feel emptiness inside, come to Jesus and he will give you endless giving, unconditional love, eternal life forever. If you trust in him, if you believe in him this morning, I beg you and plead you to do so. May God be glorified as you do.